delighted you've made it your decision to be here tonight, and I hope you have your Bible with you. I encourage you to open it, and let's turn to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 15, and we'll pick up there in just a moment. Our week is quickly and swiftly passing by, and I hope it's also passing profitably, that you're gaining something from our studies that'll help you and encourage you as we together try to make our journey toward heaven. Tomorrow night, we'll talk about things that encourage. As I mentioned each night, that is a lesson that'll focus on how we often talk about we need encouragement, and we think we're not getting encouragement, and it may be the things that we think are so discouraging may be an avenue of our encouragement. And we'll see how the Bible so labels it as that. That's tomorrow night. Friday evening, we'll close with the earnest cry of Bartimaeus, trying to get out of our rut. You may be in a rut in your marriage. You may be in a rut spiritually. How do you get out of that rut? And we see some parallels with that with Bartimaeus. Come back and be a part of each of those studies. So let's open our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 15. We're going to begin focusing on Absalom's rebellion. As you remember from your studies of the Old Testament, particularly this section of Absalom's rebellion. Absalom, David's son, wanted to be king in David's place. Thus he rebelled. I want you to notice in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, the text says that Absalom won the hearts of Israel. If you ever want to be the leader, if you ever want to be the king, especially if you want to seize the kingdom from someone who is already king, you have to win the hearts of the people. Look at verse 6. The text says, so Absalom, I'm at the end of the verse, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You have to do that if you ever want to be king. And that he did. Beginning at verse 7 now through verse 12, the text says he went to Hebron and was seeking to reign as king. Notice beginning at verse 10, that Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And so he sent messengers throughout. Soon as it sounded and you hear the trumpet, you let everybody know I'm reigning as king. Well, his rebellion only gets worse. The next three chapters, chapters 16, 17, and 18, describes how much worse it got. Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, beginning at verse 15, he rebels and takes David's concubines. Well, you may be quick to say David should have never had these concubines in the first place, and then certainly Absalom had no right to take these concubines. But beside that point, to take the king's concubines was more than just having some illicit relationship. That was a statement that I have right to what belongs to the king. It was tantamount to saying I'm king. It'd be like one going into the Oval Office, sitting down, start writing executive orders. It's kind of a tantamount to saying I think I'm president. I think I'm in power. And that's exactly what he was doing by taking those concubines. Well, then in chapter 17, he gets even worse. He now is in chapter 17 pursuing after David. Now, David has to react, and David finally reacts in chapter 18, and that's where we want to focus. In chapter 18, David sends men to resist Absalom's rebellion. And he tells them, this has got to stop. You've got to, we've got to have a military force to go after Absalom, and we've got to put it to a stop so that he keeps from pursuing after me and trying to take the throne. But I want you to notice what he said. He doesn't tell them to go kill Absalom. What he tells them, though, is this at verse 5. He said, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. 
I want you to put it to a stop. I want us to go after him. I want us to stop the efforts that he's putting forth, but I want you to deal gently with the young man, Absalom, he said. He gave them that instruction. Now notice in verses 6 through 8, there was a fierce battle. Fierce battle. At verse 7, the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David and a great slaughter of 20,000 men took place that day. What a fierce battle that was. Beginning at verse 9 through verse 18, Absalom himself was killed. We come to the latter part of the chapter, verses 19, that should be through verse 33, to bring us to the end of the chapter. The news of this report of Absalom's death comes to David. David is sitting at the gate, but at this point, David doesn't know yet what's happened. He doesn't know about Absalom. And without reading the rest of that story or getting all the details of that and going back over that, you remember how that David was sitting at the gate and they're hoping to get a glimpse of the messenger coming and maybe, just maybe, we can tell by who he is and how he's running and how many there are, what message there may be. That is, is everything well? Did it go well? And is Absalom still alive or is the bad news coming? The messenger does finally come. And I want you to notice what the messenger says at verse, verse 29 or what he asked the messenger. The king said to him, is the young man Absalom safe? Notice his focal point, though he may be concerned, is not how many were killed. Not how did the battle go. Greatest concern had, David had in his mind was, is the young man Absalom safe? Is the young man Absalom safe? Look at verse 33. You see a father's concern. When he finally finds out it didn't go well with Absalom and Absalom has been killed. David says, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He had great concern for his son. I want us to go back to verse 29, and you might underline in your text, is the young man Absalom safe? That was David's concern. Every parent ought to be asking that question, is the young man safe? The English Standard and the American Standard translate that, is it well with the young man? I want to know if he fared well in the battle. As y'all were trying to stop his efforts, did it all go well with Absalom? Is the young man safe? Every parent ought to be asking that same question. We should be concerned about their physical safety. Is the young man safe? Is the young man safe? More important, it should be that we're concerned about their spiritual safety. Is the young man safe spiritually? You see, when a child is born, we're concerned about their physical safety. We're handed this child and we're ready to leave the hospital with this child and we're wondering, I don't know if I know how to handle this child. And what do I do with this child? What do I do if it cries? What do I do? How do I handle this? Is the young man safe? We're concerned about their physical safety. We should be more concerned about their spiritual safety. And while we'll raise the night tonight the question of is the young man safe, this applies to both the young man and the young woman. You may be raising a young man, and your question should be, is the young man safe? You may be raising a young woman, and the question should be, is that young woman safe? Is the young man safe? But let's go back for a moment to this physical safety and illustrate the fact that the safety of the child will obviously be conditional. 
If you go to the doctor and you take your little child, your little baby that you've just had, and you say, is the young man safe? Well, that depends. What are you feeding the child? Is the young man safe? Well, that depends. Are you putting him in the car seat and buckling that properly? There's a number of things. It's conditional. It just depends. And I want to hear tonight, be here tonight to tell you this, that the question when it comes to spirituality, is the young man safe? It's also conditional. That just depends. So let's raise the question for our study tonight. Is the young man safe? Well, that all depends. Depends on what? Well, that depends on his grounding. The question is, is the young man safe? That depends upon his grounding. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, if you will, and in verse 52, and we'll notice that Jesus was grounded. Luke chapter 2 tells us concerning the relationship of the parents of Jesus to the child Jesus, and in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I learned from that that Jesus was trained by his parents. He was trained intellectually, physically, religiously, and socially. In other words, he was grounded as a young child. Is a young man safe? It all depends on his grounding. A child's mind and behavior is pliable, and therefore it must be instructed in the right way. Let's open our Bibles to a familiar text in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this was a favored section for the Jews, and this laid upon the parents the responsibility in the Sermon of Moses. He's on the verge of entering into the land of Canaan. That is, the people are on the verge of entering into the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is one of those sermons preparing them for that. And notice what he said beginning at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. And these words you shall, uh, which I command you shall be in your heart. Now what does he say? Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. The idea of the word diligently comes from a word which has to do with something being sharp. It's so translated in other texts. As if you depress it into them. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Press these principles into the hearts of your children. And you talk of them when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You use every opportunity you have to influence them. Make their hearts shaped by the word of God. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 22 and in verse 6. Train a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. We quote that frequently and primarily apply that to spiritual training, and it primarily applies there. But I'm convinced the passage applies broader than that. You train them in the way they should go. You teach them things about life and how to live. Some of that we'll touch on as the lesson unfolds. Let's come now to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Our point is that they are pliable and therefore they must be instructed in the right way or they'll go in the wrong way. I want to suggest to you that a person is a product of his training and a product of his teaching, whether that be by instruction or by example. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 16 and in verse 44. Here we have a proverb. I know it's in Ezekiel, but it is a proverb. And what I learned from that is what a child becomes is a direct result 
of what and how he was taught or he was shown. The text says like mother, like daughter. In other words, don't be surprised when children turn out to be just like you trained them. You may have trained them by their instruction. You may have trained them more importantly by the example that you set. You may have been telling them the right things, but not showing them the right things. Again, I want to emphasize to you that what a child becomes is a direct result of what and how they were taught and what they were shown. Don't be surprised when they turn out to be just like you trained them. The parent who raises the child and is not really interested in spiritual things, don't be surprised when the child is not interested in spiritual things. They're the direct result of how you train them. If a child is going to be a strong Christian, that has to be taught. Is the young man safe? You see, that all depends on his grounding. You see, a child that will withstand the storms and the winds of the world must be grounded. How? How so? They need to be grounded in the basics. Like maybe things of Bible authority. What Bible authority is, how it is established, and how it is applied. Are you grounding your children in Bible authority? Maybe your children grow up and they begin to be a part of a church that begins to do things contrary to the will of God. If they're not grounded in what Bible authority is, how it's established, how it's applied, and how to recognize what's contrary to Bible authority, they may go along with that innovation. That's happened time and again. Are you grounding your children and making sure whether it's taught in Bible class or whether it's taught in the pulpit, are you teaching it in your home? Are you emphasizing the principle of Bible authority to them? Not just the fact that we need to follow God's law, but how do I know what God has authorized? How do I know those principles of command, example, and inference? How do I know? What about the New Testament church, the nature of the church? Are your children being grounded in the one New Testament church, the organization of the church, and the work of the church? Do they recognize violation of those principles? Are they getting the basics of the gospel, the first principles of the gospel? Are they being grounded not only in that, but are they being grounded in evidences and in respect for the word? They're going to be bombarded in school. They're going to be bombarded in society with all kinds of attack against the Bible as being the word of God. Are they being grounded in evidence that Jesus is the Son of God? Could they stand and defend their faith that Jesus was raised from the dead? That the Bible is the inspired word of God or that there is a God? Are they being grounded in evidences? Are they being grounded of the text in, the, in its context? Or is it that our children have a memorized verse here and a memorized verse there, but they're not getting a concept by the time they graduate from high school how this text fits in this context so that they understand when a passage is taken out of its context? Are they being grounded in the basics? Being grounded in evidences? Being grounded in the text? You see, the question is, is the young man safe? Well, that all depends. It depends on, what, uh, on the grounding. But here's something else. It depends upon their honoring of their parents. Is a young man safe? Well, it depends. Let's go back to the case of Absalom. Absalom's downfall and Absalom's ruin was brought on by a perverted attitude toward his father. That's evidence in chapter 15. Gets worse in chapter 16. Even worse in 17. And it brings his own death in chapter 18. The second Samuel. But I want to suggest to you that children who hear and honor, that is, respect their parents, will be safe. 
Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy has uh, often been referred to as the second giving of the law. That's not actually correct. It is the reiteration of the law. It really wasn't given a second time as much as it was emphasized a second time. And notice in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and in verse 16, Deuteronomy 5 and in verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land in which you got the Lord your God is giving you. Notice a seeming twofold promise that if you, if you respect and obey your parents, then there's going to be a blessing that comes with that. One is longevity of life, which may refer to the idea of most likely you will live longer. But he goes on to make application to the fact that you're going to live long in the land. You learn to respect your parents. That's going to lead to principles that are going to keep you in the land in which you're going to dwell. Let's go again to the Old Testament, this time in the book of Exodus chapter 20 and in verse 12. This was, and I put in quotations, the first giving of the law when the law was given. We just noticed the reiteration of that. But notice in chapter 20 and in verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord God is given you. Let's notice another passage along the same line. Proverbs, the 13th division. Turn over with me to the book of Proverbs. The 13th division and notice in verse 1, the blessing of being respectful and obedient. An understanding of your parents, a wise son, heeds his father's instructions. A person who is wise will listen to the father's instructions. And you'll recall in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, how that children ought to obey their parents and the Lord, for this is right. What I'm trying to describe before you is the children who hear and the children who honor and respect their parents are the children who will be safe. But I want to suggest to you some consequence of that. A child who is taught to learn and respect their parents. The children who respect and obey their parents are children who are end up respecting other people. Show me a child that shows no respect for other adults, and I'll show you a child that probably doesn't have any respect for their parents. And show me a child that respects and obeys their parents. They're going to be respectful toward other people. Child that learns to respect their parents are the children who live the kind of life that most likely will promote the longevity of life. They're not going to be involved in things that bring, bring the short end of their life. They're going to stay away from destructive practices. They're going to be obedient to civil law. The children who respect and obey their parents are going to be the kind of children that are those that are more apt to listen to the word of God. That when they read what God said, they're going to do what God said. Is a young man safe is our question. Well, that depends. Depends upon his grounding. Depends upon his respect for his parents. But thirdly, I want to suggest to you that depends upon their work ethic. Is a young man safe? Well, what about their work ethic? Children need to be taught a very strong work ethic. How so? Well, let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and in verse 10. You know the passage. Well, if a man will not work, neither should he eat. What do I learn from that? Here's what I've learned from that. We need to learn, teach our children, and they need to learn to work for what they have. You see, we're in a society where children have been given things and given things, and they have been taught that everything is owed to them, and they may not have been taught properly that you need to work for what you have. That's a strong work ethic. 
Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Here's another Bible principle about a work ethic. Let him that stole still no more, but let him labor with his hands that he may have to give to him that hath need. Not only should he work for what he has, but he should work so that he can give to someone else. That's a strong work ethic. Children need to be taught a strong work ethic. But let's go further. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, if you will, and in verse 10. Children need to be taught not only that you need to work, but you need to be the best worker you can be. Whatever it is that you may do, whatever job you may take, you be the best worker. Put the best quality of work out. Notice what Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Whatever you're doing. Colossians chapter 3 verse 23 says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. They're talking about a servant being a good servant to his master. Whatever you do, do it heartily like you're working for the Lord. You know what that means? That means when your child gets their first job, maybe they're flipping burgers, you tell them they need to be the best burger flipper they can be. And they've got a job sweeping floors, they need to be the best floor sweeper they can be. And then when they become a CEO or a factory worker, a carpenter or a plumber or a CEO or whatever it may be, they're going to be the best workers in the workforce. They need to have a strong work ethic. Is the young man safe? Well, that depends. What's he been taught about his work ethic? I want to tell you, a busy person will not have time for the tempter. Our praying should involve, as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, that lead us not into temptation. One of the things that will keep us out of temptation is being busy. A busy person doesn't have much time to be involved in things that are contrary to the will of God. The busy person will not be hungry, according to the proverb writer in chapter 19 and in verse 15. The busy person does not have time for idleness or gossip. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 5 and verse 13. The busy person plans ahead, according to the proverb writer, chapter 10 and in verse 5. And I want to tell you that many parents do an injustice to their children by not teaching them how to work. I don't know if you read recently, but the Pentagon put out a report just recently in the last week or two from a study they had made or that they had received from maybe a university, I don't know where the study was made, about they were having problems finding enough young men that were fit for service for the military. And their response was, or their, the, the study showed that those of Generation Z, many of them were, in their words, too soft to be military people. Because it sat at home, played video games, nothing wrong with that, but they're not taught to work. They didn't have a strong work ethic, and they weren't strong enough to be kinds of military people that we need. Our Pentagon is concerned about that. We need to have a good work ethic for our children. A good friend of mine several years ago who's now dead, when he was a young, young boy, his daddy raised cotton, a little small patch of cotton. And he said, Daddy made us get out there and we had to, to hold that up and, and get that ground ready to, to plant the cotton. Then we planted the cotton. Then we had to hold the cotton. Then we had to work the cotton. And we had to go pick the cotton. He said, we worked ourselves to death in that cotton. He said, when I got grown, I went back home and looked at that little patch of cotton. And I said, Daddy, that's not a very big patch of cotton. It looked big when I was young. But he said, that's a little small patch of cotton. I don't see how you made any money raising cotton. 
Daddy said, I wasn't raising cotton, I was raising boys. We might have to create a job for our children. You said, we live in a circumstance where we don't have things that we can do and give our children jobs. You may have to create a job for your children. Is the young man safe? You might have to create a job for him. Teach him a strong work ethic. Is the young man safe? Well, that depends. What about their associations? Who are their associates? Who do they run with? Is the young man safe? Has everything to do with the people they run with. Let's begin with the fact that the wrong crowd corrupts good qualities. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 5 and in verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It doesn't take much. But just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The corrupting influence of leaven. And so here you are as the parent trying to instill principles of truth, principles of righteousness, principles of morality into your children. It doesn't take much influence from the world to set that aside. A little leaven leavens a whole lot. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to go there a couple of times. So when you get there, you might put a marker or a finger there. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs 1 shows the demonstration or demonstrates to us how the wrong crowd can corrupt good qualities. He said, my son, if sinners entice you, beginning at verse 10, do not consent. You see, they can invite you and you would be tempted to consent. And if they say, come, let us lie and wait for, to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down into the pit. We shall feel all, ki- uh, we shall feel all kinds of precious possessions Find all kinds of precious possessions and fill our houses with spoil. Cast your lot among us. Let us have one purse. Come and be a part of the crowd. What I'm trying to tell you is the wrong crowd corrupts good quality. I want to tell you that friends can plant ideas and encourage by their example. Sometimes by what they say, but sometimes even their example. Let's get some exa- examples of that. Do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 13? You might want to turn back there just for a moment. That's not far from where we were just a moment ago in 2 Samuel chapter 15, two chapters earlier. And what I want you to see is that Jonadab suggested to Ammon how he could fulfill his perverted desires. Do you remember Ammon was was crazy for Tamar and wanted to have an illicit relationship with her and couldn't figure out how to do that. And he didn't figure it out until his, his friend, Jonadab, came along and said, why don't you try this? Remember that? It was his idea. He planted it into his mind. Why don't you feign to be sick? Have your father to send her over and bring you some cakes. And when she comes in, then you've got her. Where did he get the idea? Got that from his friend. Was the young man safe? Well, that depended on his friends, didn't it? Give another example. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 1. We just read that, so let's go back again, and this ought to be familiar to us. Proverbs chapter 1, notice the argumentation that is used. It is not merely, my son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. But here's what they're going to say to you. Notice the reasoning. They're not only going to say, would you come and do things with us? Would you participate? Would you like to go? When you say no, they're going to reason that you ought to go. Here's what they're going to say. Look at verse, verse 11. If they some say, come with us, let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without a cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol. Man, we're going to do some things that, that others would be afraid to do. Why don't you come and be with us? Now, notice at verse, verse 11, there's benefit in this. It's, it's for your good. 
What do you mean your benefit? We'll find all kinds of precious possessions and we'll fill our houses with spoil. There's something in this for you if you would come and be with us. And by the way, be one of the crowd. Don't be different from the crowd. Come and cast your lot among us and let us have one purse. We're all in this together. They're going to give your your children every reason why they should participate. Let's go to the 22nd division of the book of Proverbs. They learn often just by the example of their friends. They learn often just by the example of their friends. Let's see how that works. Notice in Proverbs chapter 22, make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man do not go. Now we're going to finish that, but stop and think about that for a moment. I've always been fascinated with this verse. It doesn't say don't go with an adulterer. Don't go with a drunkard. Don't go with an idolater. I can understand that, but don't go with an angry man. Man loses his temper. Don't do that. Now, why is that? Look at verse 25. Lest you learn his ways and he set a snare for your soul. It is not the angry man said, I wish you were angry like me. I wish you lost your temper like I do. I wish you fly off the handle like I fly off the handle. He doesn't have to say a word. He just sets the example before you, and you learn his ways. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of us present are either doing something now, we've bought something, we're in the midst of a hobby. There's something you've bought done because you were influenced by a friend. We've all done it. You may be involved in this hobby because your friend got you interested. You may be involved in this occupation. Your friend got you the job. You spent a lot of money on something because your friend encouraged you to do that. What I'm learning from Proverbs 22 is that we learn to follow the example of our friends. Is a young man safe? Well, it all depends. Depends on their associates. Let's go to the 12th chapter of the book of Proverbs in verse 26. Righteous people need to be careful about their friends. And parents, we need to be careful of watching who their friends are. You can't be too careful about who you let come and spend time with your children and where you let your children go and who you let them run with and how much time they spend and the things they do together. Because the righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Is the young man safe? Well, that all depends, doesn't it? See, that depends upon his ground. It depends upon honoring parents, depends on the work ethic, depends upon their associations, but it also depends upon their entertainment. You see, a person's entertainment could feed their mind with immorality. That may happen in various forms. It may happen in the form of songs. It may be watching videos. It may be we just listen on the radio or listen to some some music that's been recorded. It might be in the form of television or movies. It might be videos or something on YouTube. It might be that it's treated to us and treats us to various forms of ungodliness. How so? Well, maybe profanity. There are all kinds of profanity in those forms of entertainment. It might be nudity. It might just be partial nudity, but we we are treated to nudity. It might be fornication, affairs maybe going on in the movie or the television show 
where we don't think much about it because that's what's going on. You say, well, are, are you saying that listening to that song and it had a curse word in it, I've sinned by listening to that? That's not my point. My point is the more I listen to that kind of music and the more I hear those kinds of words and the more I see those kinds of scenes and the more I'm watching the things that have to do with affairs, I am desensitized to that to the point those things don't bother me anymore. Some of the messages are anti-family. From the 1970s or 1980s on, it was well reported and admitted by some of the television producers that they were inviting the humanists to come into the boardroom to advise them, how do we get the humanist message out in our programs? And they did quite well doing that. Some of them were anti-family, some of them were anti-Christian. Have you noticed in some of the sitcoms, I don't watch any of those, and they may have changed some, but years ago, the sitcoms used to always paint the parents, and especially the dad, as just big doofuses. And the message was supposed to be, your parents are dumb. They don't know anything. And the ones that were really odd were those that were religious Christian people supposed to be. Those messages are coming across. Let's list some rules for entertainment. One of the rules we need to follow for entertainment is it does not need to stir, stir impure thoughts. What about Galatians 5 and verse 19, which condemns lasciviousness, that which leads to lust. So maybe here's a, here's a show. Is it going to lead me to have impure thoughts? What about this music I'm listening to? Does it lead to impure thoughts? Well, then maybe I don't need to be watching that. Here's a second rule. It must not desensitize us to the world. And again, my point and my emphasis is not, and I've been asking, do you think it's a sin to listen to this song? That's not my point. I won't even argue that with you. It's not going to do me any good. But what I will argue with you is that listening to that kind of music over and over, or looking at these, these shows over and over may desensitize you. Let's illustrate that with two passages. One we're just going to mention from memory because we went through it thoroughly last night. Psalm 106. You remember that passage? If that doesn't ring a bell, that's where they didn't separate from the people. Therefore, they mingled with the people. Remember that? Is that bringing back memories? And because they mingled, they learned their ways. Then they serve idols. And then they're serving their own children to those idols. See the progression? They became desensitized. I don't think you could have told a child of Israel, why don't you just sacrifice your son? They're not going to do that until they learn their ways and get familiar with idolatry. They became desensitized. Let's go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says basically the same kind of thing. But Psalm 1 describes this progression into sin. It doesn't start in the middle of the sin. You have to become desensitized before you're doing the same thing. Blessed is the man who walks. Now, we'll notice three things. Not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sets in the seat of the scornful. Number three. If you missed it, we're going to go back through those three. Let's start at the end first. Setting in the seat of the scornful, you're right in the middle doing the same things they're doing. That's never going to happen until you stand in the path of sinners, until you get familiar with their ways. You're never going to do that until, first of all, you walk in their counsel. You invite a strong Christian to go in and have a drink in a bar, and he's going to say, no, I don't do that. But you know, he gets curious and says, what is it y'all do at the bar? 
And then he starts asking more questions. I don't know anything about drinks. When you order a drink, how do you order a drink? What, what is it y'all, y'all do? Tell me what goes on in the bar. And he begins to listen, and that begins to be intriguing to him. And then he wants to just go by and look in the bar and see what's going on. See, he's becoming desensitized. And then he decides, you know what, I think I want to go, but I don't want to drink anything. I wouldn't do that. I just want to see what goes on in there. He's becoming desensitized. Give it time, and he's going to be sitting drinking with the rest of them. That's how sin works with us. Does it desensitize us to the world? Does it make me enjoy things that would be wrong for me to do? One of the sins of the Gentiles, Romans 1, 32, was not only did they do the things, but they had pleasure in those who did them. So I wouldn't think of having an affair, but the way they have painted this in this movie, this is quite interesting to watch this, and this is kind of exciting. They're having an affair. Oh, I wouldn't do that, but it's interesting to watch somebody else. Does it do that? Does it encourage thinking that generates a better life? Let's go to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, and you say, what are you talking about thinking about a better life? Philippians 4 and verse 8. Remember the text talking about thinking on these things? Here's what he said, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are a good report, think on these things. I do not think that passage is saying, I want to think about things that are pure, so give me a second here, let me think on things that are pure. Okay, I did, I've been thinking on things that are pure. That's not the idea of that. You think on things that are pure in view of becoming pure. You think on things that are lovely and becoming lovely. You think on things that are godly in view of becoming more godly. So my question is, concerning our entertainment, does it generate a better life? Does it make me think about things to become better in my life? Is the young man safe? That all depends, doesn't it? Depends on their use of tools. Do they know what tools they have and do they know how to use them? That is, tools to fight temptation. You see, you have tools, and you can be assured you can resist temptation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 13. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. That text no doubt emphasizes that the temptation you face is the same temptation everybody else faces. It's common to man. The point really is it's bearable to man. The American Standard so translates that. There is no temptation taking you, but such as you can bear. The point is it's bearable. In other words, you never face a temptation you can't bear. There is no temptation you have to cave to. There's always a way of escape. James 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That you have tools because there is the assurance you can resist temptation. What are some of those tools? Well, here's one tool. One of the tools we have is we can recall the word in a moment of temptation. You want your young, young child to be safe? You teach him about recalling the word in a moment of temptation. Thy word have I hidden in my heart, the psalmist said, that I might not sin against thee. The word can prevent sin. How so? It might be that because of my knowledge of the word, and I know the Bible says this is wrong, when I'm tempted, I'm going to say, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. I won't do that. 
Well, furthermore, Jesus, is, Jesus gave us an example of that. Do you remember the times when Jesus was tempted without our going back and reading the details? Satan would tempt him and he said, it is written. And he quotes from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. The second time he was tempted, he responded saying, it is written. And the same thing in the third. And that ought to be our response as well. We ought to be able to recall the warnings and the examples and the consequences. Maybe it's a moment of temptation where where things are leading headed toward fornication and it might be that the warnings about that flea fornication may come back to mind. Or it might be an example of someone who yielded like Joseph. It might be one like David who yielded and the consequences they face may shove us away from that sin. That's one of the tools. Is a young man safe? Well, it depends on the tools. Does he know how to use the tools? Does she know how to use the tools? Here's another tool, prayer to fight temptation. We ought to be praying before we get into a moment of temptation. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, in the example that Jesus gives of praying, he said, lead us not into temptation. This seems to be before it ever comes. In other words, may I not face that temptation. May the temptation not be strong. May I not go in the direction of temptation. May it not come my way. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and in verse 41, Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. You want to be praying before the temptation. Why? Because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. We need to pray that we'll see the door of escape. I know there's a door of escape. Paul said there was. So I need to be praying that when I meet that temptation, may I see the way out of that. May I never feel like I'm trapped and I've got to yield. I may even need to pray in the moment of temptation and pray for the strength to fight and resist because I can know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I may be needing to pray in the moment of temptation itself. It's hard to be praying and yielding to the temptation at the same time. One of those are going to go. Somewhere, one of those are going to cave in. And so in that moment of temptation, if I start praying, that's going to fight against temptation. Is the young man safe is our question. Well, that depends. That depends upon them finding a godly mate. That depends upon them finding a godly mate. I want to suggest to you that one... The one that a person marries, whoever you marry, makes all the difference in the world. Now, we won't spend a great deal of time with this point because this is where we were last night in our studies, that Ahab's wife, Jezebel, had a heavy influence upon him. You remember that? Came to pass as though it were a trivial matter. Remember that in 1 Kings chapter 16? He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. The verse goes on to show that he began to serve idols. Chapter 21, that should say, instead of uh, chapter 20, 21 and verse 25 was our text last evening that Ahab sold himself to do wickedness because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. My point is she had a heavy influence in his marriage. Who one marries makes a big difference. Let me give you another evidence of that. Solomon's wives caused even him to sin. Remember that? We called attention briefly to that last night, that even him to sin. What's that suggesting? Solomon and all of his wisdom, Solomon with all of this knowledge, 
He should have, and all the warnings that he gave to other people, even Solomon was led to sin because of who he married. That's the point. You remember the case of Herod's wife. She plotted how he could increase his sins. He was already an ungodly man. She didn't turn him into a sinner, but she helped make him a worse sinner. Because it was her idea that you asked for, to the, told the daughter, you asked for the head of John the Baptist on the charger and have him bring it in. And that he did. What I'm telling you is that one, the one you marry makes all the difference in the world. Further evidence, elders' wives have qualified them. So you have godly men among you serving as elders, and they're not elders merely because of their qualities. It's because of their wives and, and their faithfulness and their dedication and their devotion and their encouragement. Who one marries makes all the difference in the world. A man's wife is said to be his helpmeet, suitable for his needs, Genesis chapter 2 and in verse 15. A good mate seeks to influence them in a right direction. One last passage in the lesson will be yours. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. The text talk says in beginning at verse 1, Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. The text goes on to say, um, do not let your beauty be the outward adorning of the ranging of the hair and the putting on the gold or putting on a fine apparel, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. What's the point? Seemingly, this woman in this context is not married to a Christian. You say, how do you know that? Well, look back at verse 1, that if some do not obey the word, they without the word may be won by the conduct of their wives. She's wanting more than anything else to influence her husband with the gospel. She'll do whatever it takes. If that means preaching to him, but in this case, he's saying she's going to be quiet. Notice the text, what it says, that she may be won by the conduct without a word. That means without her harping, without her preaching to him. Or she may teach him, but she's not going to harp on that. And so her attitude is, I'm not going to harp on that if that reaches him. Or if I need to teach him that well, if I need to get someone else to do that, I'll do that. I just want to influence him in the right direction. I want to bring him to the Lord, and I'll do that by my example. Is a young man safe? You see, that all depends on a number of things. Are you concerned about your children, their physical welfare? You need to be greatly concerned about their spiritual welfare. Is that young man or that young woman safe? Well, that depends on their grounding. That depends on the respect they have for their parents. Are they honoring their parents? You see, that depends upon their work ethic. That depends upon their associations. That depends upon their entertainment. Their use of tools to fight temptation. And that depends upon them finding a godly mate. Is the young man safe? I want to tell you, if you're a young person who's reached the age of accountability and you've not obeyed the gospel, you're not safe. You're not in a safe relationship with the Lord. You're in a lost condition. Would you enter into the right relationship with the Lord? Would you come tonight believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing? <laughs>